welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Madden America podcast. I am your host for today, Ayurdhidhar, an assistant professor of psychology at Mount Mary University and a science news writer at Mad in America. Our guest for today is Dr. Hannah Picard, who is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. She's also appointed with the William H. Miller Department of Philosophy and the Berman Institute of Bioethics and with the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. So it's clear that her expertise is not just deep, but also spread wide across disciplines and fields. Uh, she has far too many publications to count. I, I counted like 30 and then I stopped, so I lost track. But there are many book chapters and journal articles and a book that you have co-edited, The Rutledge Handbook. But what I find special about her is that she maintains that really important thread between clinical work in the real world and her philosophical writings, while many others often get lost in one or another. So today we will discuss her really interesting model on addiction and personality disorders, the importance of agency for patients, and her work in therapeutic communities. Welcome to Mad in America, Dr. Picard. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. All right, so let's dive in. You have written about the responsibility without blame model for addiction. Could you tell us what this model is and also what it is not? Sure. So in ways, let me start not with the model, but with my own experience, which is the basis for the model, which is the clinical work I did in a therapeutic community in England for about 10 years. And I came to that work in a funny way. I had very little clinical experience. I was a philosopher, uh, sort of looking for a way to make my work in philosophy of mind engage the world a little bit more. And through sort of a, a series of lucky, lucky events and good fortune, I found myself in a personality disorder clinic with very, very little clinical experience, working with, you know, really quite vulnerable and high-risk patients without a lot of knowledge or background. And what struck me more than anything else in those original clinical experiences was the way in which my more senior and able colleagues related to our patients, who we called members of our community, in a way which um, almost seemed impossible to me, given my philosophical background, but also just the kind of understanding of how you relate to people who do things that strike you as problematic that I had in virtue of growing up in our mm -hmm. society. And so at the time, I was really inclined to call that way of relating, holding somebody responsible, but without blaming them. That was sort of the, the, the concepts or the words that I immediately um, looked to. But I really had very little idea about how to theorize it. And so in some sense, the model is an attempt to theorize or just articulate this mode of relating that struck me so forcefully when I first hit this really distinctive kind of clinical context. And I guess I think it's important in ways that I hit it quite naive. You know, I was, I was quite innocent because I think it somehow allowed me to see something which maybe people who work their way into clinical work sort of 
become accustomed to bit by bit and you don't see it quite mm-hmm. so so strongly. So for me, there were, there were really these moments where it's as if the scales fell from my eyes and I understood that there was something that I took for granted as a philosopher and a person, which was a mistake. It didn't need to be taken for granted. So let me now try to articulate what that is, having sort of located it in that experience. So when we are confronted with a person who does things that we think of as morally wrong and who seems to us responsible for doing so, we are incredibly inclined to blame them and to become critical and judgmental and um, to sort of write them off as a person, to potentially punish, to potentially um, withdraw from a relationship. So those things come very naturally to us. And it's almost as if we think that insofar as someone is responsible for doing something wrong, they deserve that response. We're right to have that response. And I guess what I saw in the clinic that was so profoundly reorienting for me was that there was nothing inevitable about that response, that it was perfectly possible to recognize that someone was responsible for wrongdoing and yet behave towards them totally differently. On the one hand, hold them responsible, but on the other, do so with compassion and care and concern. And so that kind of way of bringing together responsibility and blame, which I had always taken for granted, which I think is very prominent in our society, all of a sudden felt to me unnecessary. And the responsibility without blame model or framework is a it's an attempt to articulate a concept of responsibility and a concept of blame, which kind of makes sense of this alternative way of relating that um, I discovered when I started working in a therapeutic community. Thank you for that. I'm so glad you brought up the place of therapeutic communities. I can imagine people having a very strong response to the model. Despite the fact that it says it's responsibility without blame, the consensus is that addiction is a brain disease, and that's the neurobio model that we have. So they immediately think that you're blaming the patient despite the fact that it's called responsibility without blame. So I'm glad you brought up your work in therapeutic communities. Uh, For our readers and our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about what therapeutic communities are? How do they work? How are they different? Sure. Um, So they're really distinctive clinical environments. Um, I I think they're distinctive anywhere in the world. I've been in the U.S. now just a couple of years. My sense is they may be particularly distinctive in the U.S. Mm -hmm. where... um, the model of psychiatric treatment strikes me as more medicalized and pharmaceutically based than it is in the in the UK, for instance, where I worked. But a therapeutic community is um, an approach to uh, treatment which has proven very effective for a range of disorders that I think of as disorders of agency. That's a term that um, I use to describe disorders where part of the diagnostic symptoms or the maintaining factors really involve ways people are behaving, right? So you can think of any mental disorder as having probably a cognitive component, an emotional or affective component, and a behavioral component. Um, But where the weight is, is different maybe with respect to different disorders. So Some disorders like personality disorder or addiction are diagnosed very much through patterns of behavior. That's really core to the nature of the disorder. And therapeutic communities have proven to be really effective for engaging people who have disorders of agency. And 
Um, I think they're wonderful. I mean, I, I could try to speak about it in more technical terms, but I'm going to try to just describe what it's like or what it was like for me to be in such a community. It's incredibly egalitarian. There is a flattened hierarchy, so you really try to get beyond the power asymmetry between the doctor and the patient. And uh, we're sort of all in it together. People are typically in therapeutic communities for a long time, so they have a journey and there are some members of the community, we call people members, not patients, who are more senior as opposed to more junior. And the senior members often take a really active leadership role. So there's a kind of progress and everybody's part of each other's therapeutic journey. And on the one hand, has responsibility for themselves and their behavior, but on the other has responsibility for others in the group. So the model is really one of um, creating a community where people can do the kind of therapeutic work they need within a supportive caring environment that allows the creation of really strong and authentic relationships between people. So the idea very much is to help people be less dependent, but more interdependent, right? That would be a kind of a kind of catchphrase. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, less dependent, but more interdependent. And uh, so could you tell me, like, what would it look like for a patient with, uh, with an addiction issue or a personality disorder and problems with self-harm? Um, any of these, like, what would it look like for them to be in a therapeutic community where there is the responsibility without blame model? How does that work? So, so let, me, let me give you an example of one of the techniques that we used for a range of behaviors that pa- patients needed to address, that community members needed to address. So one of the things we do is we use contracts with the group very effectively. So here's how a contract works. And really interestingly, we encourage people to go on contracts often in the pre-therapy group. So this in some sense was before they even really delved deep into whatever it was that was bringing them there, that was the source of their problems. So it's a behavioral contract. And the contract involves undertaking to stop doing whatever it is that is the problem for you, right? Whether that's drinking or cannabis or self-harm. And people have to write down on the contract two things. One, that they will stop doing this. And two, that if they find themselves wanting to, they will make a support call. They will reach out to somebody else in the group for support. Um, to help them not do that. And what would typically happen is that people would come uh, with the first draft of the contract, which would say, you know, I will try not to self-harm or drink or whatever it happens to be. And the group would say, no, you have to get rid of the word try. You have to commit to doing it. And there'd be discussion about that. But eventually the person sometimes reluctantly would be convinced and they would write a contract which said they would stop and that if they were struggling, they would reach out for help and they would sign it. And then the entire group would sign it. Sometimes this could be a group of 25 or 30 people and write a message on on this piece of paper. And the message could be something incredibly simple like, I'm here for you. Call me if you need me. This is going to be hard. I know you can do it. You deserve this. You really can do this, then you deserve it. So really simple messages of support, care, solidarity. And the person would go away. 
and quite regularly stop the behavior and potentially draw on the group for support. Right. But I, I guess if you sort of think of a model of any mental disorder that sees this behavior as compelled by neurobiological pathology, the idea that we write this contract, the person signs up to it, we all sign our names to it and offer support, and they go off and stop the behavior, makes no sense at all, right? That's not, you know, this piece of paper that people carry around in their pockets. I mean, some people, you know, read it every day. They would bring it back and it would be worn and torn from use because of the symbolic meaning of this to them. It's not whatever it is that it's doing for a person to help them get better, to help them make those changes. It's really not a cure for a neurobiological disease of compulsion. That seems pretty evident. So this is a really nice example of ways in which asking someone to take responsibility in the sense of making changes they want to make and supporting them to do so has tremendous clinical effect. And of course, it's a lovely model of responsibility without blame, because in some sense, the responsibility, it's really on the surface of what we're doing there, right? We're asking someone to stop behavior, taking responsibility for doing that, uh, asking for support if they need it. But of course, the asking for support is also really key, um, because there's no blame there. There's concern, support, and compassion. And I guess sort of the, the, the last thing to say about this is that, of course, not everyone succeeded. And even when people succeeded for a period, these behavioral patterns are hard as anything to kick, right? I mean, let's not beat around the bush in that respect. So people lapse. But one of the really, really key things is that in face of a lapse, there's not uh, an immediate blame, condemnation, punitive attitude. Rather, the real questions are, what happened? Like, why? Let's think together about why you lapsed. What was going on that meant that, you know, having not, not taken a drink for three weeks or whatever it's been, you did this last week. What was going on? And the reason to understand that is so that the lessons from it can be learned so that next time the person can do it differently, right, and not lapse. So the idea of, of responsibility that really, um, I think, you can glean from that kind of practice is what I like to think of as fundamentally forward-looking, right? right? So the reason yes. why we're using responsibility and thinking about responsibility has to do with the way it helps people learn and change, mm -hmm. not because of the way it licenses blame or punishment mm -hmm. or ostracization. So it has a very different function within right. a therapeutic community. Yeah, and that's important because people usually think of responsibility as a backward-looking thing where now that you're responsible, what are the consequences and the punishments that can be, you know, vetted out to the person? And this is a very different concept of this responsibility. So I'm glad you spoke about that. Thank you. Um, you also mentioned the neurobiological model of addiction, and I wanted to kind of get into that. Um, so you have written that Partly, it is scientifically unsound that the data and evidence we have doesn't really corroborate that it's a simple brain disease. And of course, there is the second part that we often use the neurobiomodel, not just for addiction, but repeatedly for other disorders. And my focus is schizophrenia, so for that. And we think it's going to help people reduce stigma, but it does the opposite. It takes increasing levels of alienation, dehumanization, perceptions of dangerousness, and all of those so could you speak to the neurobiomodel and what is the evidence that says that it's not as simple as that? 
So let me actually start, if I may, with stigma. I think sometimes it's important to address that first because it enables people to be more objective and even-handed about assessing the science. So um, the brain disease model of addiction was, you know, in, in ways most famously developed by Alan Leshner, who was a director of NIDA some decades ago, and who clearly conceived of it both as scientifically credible, but also as an antidote to stigma. And that effect was very much part of the reason why he and his colleagues at NIDA promoted the model and why many people promote it today. And, and, and the, the thinking behind that is, is really very simple. Um, the thought is that um, if addiction is a brain disease of compulsion, then people who use drugs and who can't help doing so because they have a brain disease and so aren't responsible and rather than condemn them and potentially punish them by using, you know, the state's most coercive tool of criminal justice to manage and regulate behavior, we should treat it as a public health problem, as a medical condition, like we do other medical conditions. And it's a, it's a, it's a really simple model, but of course, what it depends on is the idea that when we apply a label like a disease, it actually has this destigmatizing effect. And that's not something we can know just from the armchair. What the effect of any label is, mm -hmm. is something that we need to investigate empirically. And it's also, if you stop and think about it, likely to be very uh, dependent on different audiences. So um, there's a lot more work to be done, but as I understand myself, the basic findings to have come out of um, empirical studies of the effects of biogenetic labels of mental disorder, including addiction, but other mental disorders as well, is that they do actually help friends and family sometimes maintain relationships. So that removal of responsibility can remove blame mm -hmm. and help maintain relationships. But in terms of um, the impact on public perception at large or people who are more further removed, they can increase ostracization and a sense of dangerousness and a sense of otherness. So they have these really um, problematic effects. So I think the best we could say, uh, to borrow a phrase of um, another researcher, uh, Nick Haslam, is that it's a mixed blessing. <laughs> right? There might be some good and some bad. And really, uh, where the good is and where the bad is, is very, very audience dependent. So, um, and, and in a sense, you know, this is something which you might predict if you just stop and thought for a minute about how incredibly stigmatized other diseases are. Mm -hmm. So if you think of something like leprosy or HIV or even cancer, there's been battles to combat the stigma around those diseases. Mm -hmm. So that something is a disease is an, an obvious way in our society to reduce stigma. Okay, so I wanted to start here because I think that if you have the idea that the only way to combat stigma is to use the brain disease model, then you're going to be loath to look at the scientific evidence for or against the brain disease model. So I think it's important to start by saying, first of all, it's unclear the model has had the effect on stigma that mm -hmm. we hoped. Second of all, there are different ways of combating stigma. 
So one of, um, you know, one of the things I hope for the responsibility with our blame model is that it might offer a little bit of resources there. But the second thing is that I think um, that we really do as a society need to begin to interrogate our own moral attitudes towards drugs and drug users, which is something the brain disease model doesn't do at all. It accepts that drug use is bad and people need an excuse, which the brain disease model offers. Um, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with using drugs. And I think that being real about sort of the moralism and condemnation, which is left over from a more puritanical element of society in relation to drugs and drug use, is something we need to sort of approach directly head on. So um, I don't think you need the brain disease model to effectively combat stigma. And that's important because now we can say what might be right or what might be wrong with the brain disease model. There are uh, two main concepts within the brain disease model. One is that we have a brain disease and the other is that this, this causes compulsive use. And I guess I think one thing we know pretty much for sure now is that the evidence suggests that however hard it is for people to stop using drugs or manage their use, thinking that they're completely powerless and the concept of compulsion applies to drug taking and addiction is a mistake. And the reason for that has to do with sort of the increasing evidence, both from animal models and from human studies, that um, animals and humans respond to alternative reinforcers when they're available. Now, that's a mouthful. So let me just say what that means. It means that if you give people a better choice than using drugs, they take it. So too with rodents. And this is extraordinarily important to recognize, um, in particular, given that we know that many people who struggle from addiction live in contexts where they precisely don't have a lot of alternative goods in their lives, right? Addiction is associated with long-term mental health problems, with socioeconomic adversity, with living in poverty and suffering, you know, in contexts of hopelessness and sometimes humiliation that many of us are, you know, privileged enough never to face. And there aren't a lot of alternative goods in people's lives in those contexts. So this is an incredibly important um, it's an incredibly important piece of evidence because, you know, it really does suggest that sometimes the answer to addiction is not to fix something supposedly wrong with someone's brain, but to lift them out of poverty and give them the chance for a meaningful life, which they don't otherwise have. Okay, so, so the first thing about the brain disease model is that... Um, while I think it's incredibly important to recognize how difficult it is to stop using once you're addicted, it does seem that compulsion is not an apt characterization. Mm -hmm. And that stops us from looking at some of the interventions we might otherwise look at, socioeconomic interventions, educational interventions. It also, of course, disempowers the person, mm -hmm. right? Um, the other bit of the brain disease model, which... Um, is also sort of obviously part of the model is the idea that it's a disease and in particular a disease of the brain. And I guess my own view, and of course in ways I would say this as a philosopher, it's the kind of thing philosophers always say, is that um, we really don't have a very good understanding of what a disease is, let alone a brain disease is. One thing that seems quite clear is that whatever it is, the concept of disease involves not just atypicality, but pathology, dysfunction in some way. 
And to say that something in someone's brain is dysfunctional requires we know what the brain is like when it's functioning normally. Mm-hmm. So we need a theory of normal brain function. Um, and to be honest, I think that's actually something we don't have. So I think it's possible that addiction will prove to be a brain disease of choice, at least in some contexts. But I think we need a much better theory of normal brain function, as well as a better understanding of some of the processes underlying choice and addiction Mm -hmm. in order for that claim to be something that we should sign up to, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just have as one hypothesis on the table. And you can see now why, in some sense, it matters to think that uh, we don't fail to combat stigma simply by not signing up to that hypothesis, right? We should like look at the scientific evidence and wait and see and do more research. But in virtue of doing that, I don't think we necessarily harm people who are struggling with addiction because it's just unclear how effective the brain disease model has been at combating stigma. So let me add to this. Like when you were talking about these things, a couple of things came to my mind. One of it was you know, the emergence, you said, of how the neurobiomodel came into being and the fact that combating stigma was a part of it right from the beginning. And it reminds me of like, you know, Foucault's idea that we think things begin one way. And but if you look at history, there are all of these accidents, you know, that kind of cause them. But what I wanted to talk about was what the neurobiological model does to the person. So Ian Hacking's idea of the looping effect, right? The way we study and categorize things uh, can in turn change the experience of the person themselves. And so what happens to a person who's told that you, of course, have a brain disease and, you know, where do you go from there? When you think you have a brain disease and that's how now you identify and it begins to shift your experience of this thing. So even if you, you had some level of control initially, you know, over time, it's just... Um, you lose it. Have you seen that happen with, so, you know, addiction is complex. Some patients will tell you that uh, I absolutely have no control. Having an addiction means you have no control, while other patients will say that I do think I have a certain level of control. And the service user movement has taught us to appreciate complexity and heterogeneity in the narratives of service users. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so how do you deal with that? If, you, if a patient comes up to you and says, uh, I absolutely am an addict and that means I have no control. Uh, how do you begin with that? If they have identified with the neurobio model, that this is a brain disease and it's a thing of compulsion, how would you work with that? I'm really glad you asked me that partially because um, I omitted when I was talking about what we actually empirically know about the impact of the brain disease label that um, at least overall, it doesn't look like it helps patients either. Mm -hmm. So it might help friends and family. It doesn't help the general public. It also doesn't help patients precisely because it increases pessimism, hopelessness, it disempowers. And you can see why for the kinds of reasons that were just behind (laughs) the question you asked, right? If you have a brain disease um, of compulsion, there's nothing you can do you're stuck waiting for a doctor to fix you. So in some sense, if we go back to that distinction between interdependence and dependence Mm -hmm. that I mentioned when introducing um, you to some of the ideas that govern how therapeutic communities work, Mm -hmm. it's very much an idea of dependence, right? I have a disease, I'm dependent on the doctor to cure me. So that sense of agency and disempowerment is really eradicated. And certainly... 
um, when I first started thinking about the brain disease model and drawing on my own clinical experience, such as it is, one of the things that worried me most about it was precisely the impact on people who were trying to recover. And I don't think it's in any way um, unusual or uncommon now to recognize that a sense of one's own agency, a sense of one's own potential, a sense of one's own possibility is really important for so many people to do what it takes to actually stop using and try to make changes that they want to make in their lives. So I think of that kind of focus on agency, um, which the Responsibility Without Blame framework really tries to support, uh, as really crucial to a lot of people's journeys out of addiction and into a different place. Um, that said, the, you know, part of the question you raised is that that's not true for everyone, right? So some people um, really seem to um, have found good in the brain disease model and a way of understanding their condition that they find helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what I'm going to say right now may be a bit controversial, but I'll try to say it anyway. Um I think there's a really important distinction between whether somebody's self-conception, especially to do with their own relationship with their disorder, is helpful to them and whether it's true. And we all have many, many beliefs that might be false about ourselves and the predicament we're in. Nonetheless, some of those beliefs might be really helpful to us and true. So from a clinical perspective, if there was somebody who I genuinely believed the brain disease model was helping them, right, to sort of make the changes they needed or to to, to improve their self-esteem or whatever it happened to be, the last thing I'd want to do is displace it, right? Because from a clinical perspective, your aim is to help people. It's not to make them believe all and only the things that you think are most likely to be true. Okay. So, That's one really important answer to your question is that if that's a useful narrative to people, then they should have that narrative. It's not, you know, anyone's job to to tell them they're wrong. But that said, my experience working clinically uh, in a therapeutic community, and of course, this is a very distinctive environment. um, And I'm also, in what I'm about to say, very aware of cultural differences between the UK and the US and the way culture can impact what people recognize as true or helpful and not. Um, I think a lot of times some of the really important work people did in that community was precisely to give up on a kind of biogenetic understanding of what was wrong with them. So what I don't think is that just because somebody believes they have brain disease and says they have no control, therefore we should, without having a conversation with them, simply accept that. Mm -hmm. Because it may be that that conception that they have about themselves is, even if it's something they cleave to, it's actually a block to them making the changes they need to make. Mm -hmm. So that was certainly my experience working in, in that therapeutic community, that helping people to sort of put aside what, um, uh, you know, a, a famous sociologist called Talcott Parsons, who I'm sure you know really um, aptly named the sick role, mm-hmm. to put aside the sick role and find some agency was really important to the path to recovery. 
in most cases, but maybe not all cases. And I guess in ways that's maybe an, a, a really important point to hit home is that part of what I think the brain disease model hasn't done and which we're bad to do bad at doing in general in mental disorder is precisely recognizing the heterogeneity. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that the narratives that help some people won't help others. Mm-hmm. It's also that the ideology, what's actually going on to make it the case that they're struggling with whatever it is they're struggling that that is the basis for the diagnosis may be very different from person to person. And so we, we just have to sort of begin to think that we don't have a single disease, a single universal experience, which is true of all, that that heterogeneity and diversity is just so important both to science and to clinical engagement. Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. Thank you. That was a great answer. So the, the cultural aspect kind of reminds me of, um, so I came to the U.S. about eight years ago now, and I'm from India, and that's where I've lived my life. But one of the really interesting differences was, as a cultural psychologist, was the linguistics of addiction. So in India, we never thought of addiction as a thing, as a, as a disease, number one, or as something that you are. So in English, you are an addict. Mm -hmm. And in Hindi, you are someone who drinks so too much. So it's a doing rather than a being. Oh, that's wonderful. I so wish that the English language didn't enable (laughs) the essentializing of the person in that way. Yeah. Lira Bradatsky actually has done some really cool work um, on linguistics and how English has this... uh, thing in which blame is always put on the person. So the linguistics and the culture and that whole part is very important. So in India, we used to, we always thought of like people who drink too much and have a problem and reach financial ruin. And then they start drinking and then they go back to like occasional drinking and it's not considered a relapse. It's just considered, you know, at one point he drank too much and now he doesn't. It's just a fascinating difference, even in terms of like culturally how this works. So the idea is that people self-label and then in virtue of doing that, their sense of who they are and their identity becomes fashioned by whatever it is that that label contains, yeah. right? So when you, I, I mean, I, I worked on this to some extent, just the, the power of identifying as an addict or being labeled as an addict and keeping you mm-hmm. in a place where you're an addict. Because if you stop using, all of a sudden, there can be this really profound existential question, which is, who am I if I'm not an addict? Yeah. And a language like um, Hindi, which yeah. doesn't enable that essentializing of yeah. a person, just wouldn't produce that kind of effect in the yep. same way, right? Thank you for adding that. I will keep that in mind. This is the bit that when I teach my students, they are always just mind blown because they're on television, they've always seen addiction as a compulsive brain disease. The yeah. idea that most people age out of addiction. Uh, yeah. Many people do, many people go cold turkey and we never really see that in the, in the broader cultural, like popular narrative. Um, you don't read and watch people who just age out of addiction because they got too busy. I've read about people who just had kids and they were like, I don't have time for this anymore. My question is, why do you think some people don't manage to do so? So what are the factors that keep some people from like, stopping their abuse while many, many others kind of age out of it and stop on their own for all sorts of reasons. Okay, so the first thing I need to say is that what I'm about to say is not exhaustive, right? Mm-hmm. So if we if we go back to that idea of heterogeneity, right. there's going to be different things to say for different people. But here, here are some things that we know that um, 
at least uh, quite a lot of the people who don't mature out, as it's called, who don't mm-hmm. sort of spontaneously remit in their late 20s and early 30s, or indeed maybe a bit later in life, um, are people, and we touched on this earlier, who have comorbid psychiatric disorders and come from socioeconomic positions where they have to live in poverty with limited opportunities and, you know, perhaps as well with discrimination and a sense of ostracization from um, conventional society or the kinds of things that other people have. So for me, um, I always put that fact together with two other facts that I just think we absolutely need on the table when thinking about addiction. The first is that um, drugs have tremendous benefits. This is something, again, we pretend isn't the case, right? People take drugs for reasons. And the reasons are that they do a lot of good, whatever the risks, whatever the costs, they do a lot of good. And one of the things they do is that they provide relief from suffering when pretty much nothing else does. So that's the first thing that we really need to have on the table when we're thinking about why people don't mature out. Drugs provide relief from pain and suffering like nothing else does. Here's the second thing. It looks like the best predictor of addiction severity is what's called coping motive. And coping motive is uh, the self-report, so the conscious use of drugs as a means of coping with negative affect. So what happens when you put these three things together? Drugs relieve (laughs) suffering. People who are most severely addicted tend to be those who acknowledge that the reason why they use drugs is because of the way it helps with negative affect or Mm -hmm. suffering. And we know that the people who don't mature out tend to be people with comorbid psychiatric problems and who may live in just absolutely terrible conditions. Well, the reason why... (laughs) people don't mature out, is that they live really harrowing lives and drugs are the one thing that gives them some relief, some escape, and they know that. So that is, I think, probably the most plausible and general explanation for why some people don't mature out while other people do. But that said, for me, I actually think that... um, there will be differences between different people. And what I'm about to say, no doubt, won't apply to any, no, won't apply to everyone. But I think if we go back to the point we just touched on about identity, that can actually be uh, a really important and unrecognized factor in why people don't remit, don't find a way forward. And I think the power of our own sense of our identities and what feels comfortable, not necessarily because we like it, but because it's familiar and because we don't really know who, we, who we'd be or what we would do if we didn't have that identity, is extraordinarily powerful. And if you think that the longer has somebody has lived with an identity as an addict, the more entrenched that is, the less they may have any sense of who else they would be, the less in reality in our culture, there may be anyone else that we would support them to be, right? We are quite stigmatizing and ostracizing of people who have histories of addiction. Then, you know, part of why people may not may not sort of spontaneously remit, they may continue, is that they really don't know who they would be or what they would do if they weren't an addict and weren't having a life that was so structured around drug use. And, you know, in relation to that as well, of course, sometimes people have communities of users who are friends 
and who they have real bonds and relationships with. So in, in, in giving up the drug, you give up not only your sense of self, but also the community maybe who supported you when other people haven't for a long time. And so, you know, I, I just kind of want to throw that in there as well as the, the psychiatric context and the socioeconomic context and the function of drugs, because I think it's actually a really important piece of drug use for many people, which a focus on the brain disease model obscures. We need to think seriously about how addiction affects people's identity and the role of identity in keeping people stuck in a particular way of living. And this reminds me of especially the part you said about, you know, community of users, um, the experiments with rats. Uh, and I know you know about this. Uh, the mice we, uh, who were addicted to morphine and, you know, we, you put them in like giant communities with playrooms and other mice and you give them choice of taking morphine-laced water or just regular water. And they tend to, they tend to de-addict themselves uh, if they have this, this sense of like the context is correct and the environment is correct. Yeah. yeah, so the experiment I think you're referring to is Bruce Alexander's famous yeah. experiment called Rat Park. Yes. Um, there's been difficulties replicating that. But the truth is that the, the take-home messages have been absolutely confirmed by more well-controlled uh, um, animal models, which offer rodents a choice between right. drug yeah. and an alternative mm-hmm. good. And one of the most amazing recent studies, uh, which was conducted by an animal models experimentalist called Marco Venero, who was working in Yuvin Chahan's lab, recently gave uh, rodents a choice between uh, any number of drugs, they used heroin and methamphetamines, um, and social reward. So the chance to to get to play or be with a a conspecific. And these were socially housed rats. They were not deprived in any way of social reward. And quite extraordinarily, 100% of them opted for the social reward over the drug. And that was irrespective of their uh, history of use, the addiction severity score they had on the RAT DSM addiction model, um, the amount of drug, the dose offered, the sex of the rat, female rats like drugs more than male rats. Um, There were only two things that shifted them away from social reward and towards the drug reward. And that was if you punish them for taking their social reward. So you gave them foot shock or you delayed it a really long time. Mm -hmm. So they had to wait. But I I guess for me, part part of the relevance of these experiments, which I think are extraordinarily illuminating and fruitful, because it looks like even rats who are addicted will take an alternative reinforcer to drugs if you give it to them, namely social reward. But part of what's so interesting about these experiments is that what the experimentalists do is effectively impose this choice on a rat where they can have either a drug or a social reward, right? And the kind of context we were just talking about where you have a community of users is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. In that community, you don't get the social reward unless you have the drug. That's part of why sometimes drugs can be so powerful because they're connected to our communities. They're connected to our identity. And, you know, that's not something we model in rats typically. All right. Thank you for that. And uh, what I wanted to ask about was this conflict that someone might say appears to be there. I know you talk about the structural determinants, the systemic conditions that can make addiction worse, like poverty and things like that. And at the same time, uh, you write about inculcating a sense of responsibility and agency in the patient. 
and um, are the clients, you know, that to some extent they are responsible for their behavior, at least, you know, to some extent. So how do we respond to someone who says, isn't there a conflict? Like, how do you deal with a patient uh, with two kids, uh, no health insurance, uh, three jobs, and, you know, has to take the bus to go to work and is trying to manage her addiction to prescription medication? Like, first, does she have any agency? And, you know, there is a huge difference between making someone feel empowered and actually being empowered. So I was just wondering, like, how do you reconcile this idea that for people who have very little power, how do we work and inculcate agency? So that's a fantastic question. And let me start by saying that this is one of the places where I worry that some of the language that the model uses, like responsibility, can be hijacked by people Mm -hmm. who want to use it for blaming purposes. Mm -hmm. But here's the first flat-footed answer to that. So, of course, people make choices and have agency relative to the circumstances in which they live. And my own personal view is that the point is not just to be talking about other people's choices and the responsibility they have. We also need to be talking about our choices and the responsibility we have. And in the kind of context that you describe, where we have somebody who, yes, is using drugs, but, you know, has so limited options. A mother has three jobs, you know, the, the, the sort of right. the actual material circumstances of her life are so disempowering and so constraining. The idea that our first port of call there would be to say you need to take responsibility is absurd. The first port of call is we need to do something Mm -hmm. to give this person the choices to which any human being is entitled, right? And so part of the reconciliation here is just to say that the last thing this is supposed to do is always to put the emphasis, never mind the blame, on a person to sort things out. It's on us for letting people live in those kinds of contexts where, you know, basic human needs, basic ways in which, you know, all of us should have access to, you know, home, work, food, warmth, care are not being met. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing to say. And I guess the second thing to say is that always when we talk about things like agency and responsibility, you know, one starts or, you know, any kind of theory about anything, you know, a brain disease model even, you know, we we end up sort of making general claims as if it's always true. Well, really, there will be exceptions. And it's not part of the theory that uh, there's never a case in which someone really has no agency. Of course, there are. The question is whether that's a good model for understanding the majority of the cases. And so, you know, I'm really open to the thought that in some contexts, you know, if there's any agency at all, it's really so minimal <laughs> that it's it's just not the place to start, let alone the place to, to emphasize. Yeah. No, uh, I, I get it. I mean, the, I, you know, I, I come from a background of like uh, critical theory. So looking at systemic factors instead of... Yeah what happens inside people is kind of our thing. And at the same time, um, as I've grown older, I've realized um, it's the complexity, the fact that some things work sometimes for some people and that it's, that's always that. And uh, experience comes before theories. So you're not trying to impose theory on people. 
it's the balance. There is agency, but if there are these massive systemic factors, and we have to understand that sometimes there might not be any agency. And how to be able to appreciate the heterogeneity of all of this, that all of these things are true, rather than this is my pet theory and everything has to work like this. So absolutely, no, I completely agree with your answer. It is, it is a nuance, it is complex. And Let me say one more thing if we have time, which is something for me that maybe it's because of my background working in working clinically, but I find it a helpful metaphor. I guess I, I, I really feel that we use, we use biogenetic labels to protect us from two things. One is this tendency we have to blame. So those of us who, you know, care about patients, who work with patients, or who just want to sort of maintain a kind of, say, a more liberal, compassionate attitude, right? Um, You know, we're loath to blame. We don't want to blame. And so we use a biogenetic label to protect us Mm -hmm. from that tendency. But we also use it in a sense, to protect us from our own collective responsibility in creating these conditions which allow mental disorders to flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason why the labels do that is because they they take our focus and put it squarely on the idea that something's wrong with the person's brain as opposed to something's wrong with the material conditions and the social conditions, which we are complicit with, mm-hmm. all of us. And so, you know, I, I kind of see biogenetic labels mental disorder as a little bit of a kind of psychological defense mechanism, mm-hmm. right? They're there much more for us than they are for the person. Mm-hmm. And I would really like us to explore models of disorder which speak to people's own experiences and own sense of the struggles they have and the conditions they face and the reasons why they have those struggles in those conditions a little bit more. Because in some sense, the other thing that the biogenetic models tend to do is they strip out that psychological experiential component from our understanding Mm -hmm. of mental disorder. And they make it all about the brain and what it causes people to do in this very mechanistic way. I have one more question. This model and, you know, um, have you ever received any pushback? Like, have you ever had people erroneously conclude that you are blaming people and receive pushback from other academics or patients, you know, in media or anything? So I guess when I first came to the US, I was really surprised at how angry people were at the idea that I even questioned whether addiction is a brain disease. I mean, as I said earlier, I think it's possible it is in some cases. I don't think it's a disease of compulsion. I think if it's a disease, it's a disease of choice. But um, that kind of more nuanced um, agnostic position was something that made people furious. Yeah. So that's that's one place where I've certainly been quite taken aback at the strength of people's reactions. But as I said earlier, I think it really has to do with what I think of as a, a mistaken belief that if we don't just sort of blindly cleave to the brain disease model, we just will risk stigmatizing everybody. So, I, you know, I think in some sense that anger comes from a good place, but I think it's mistaken. Yeah. I guess with respect to the emphasis on responsibility, this, that's a funny question. It's not something I've thought about really before. And I think the truth is that I've never had much pushback from patients or people with mental health problems. Um, although, you know, I, I, I guess it's really important always to articulate the model 
with nuance. And maybe that's something that's not quite come out in our conversation so far. So responsibility comes in degrees just because agency comes in degrees, right? There can you can be you can have more or less choices, you can have more or less control. Similarly, you can be more or less responsible. And so that's something I always emphasize. But I guess I think on the whole, um, my own experience talking with people who struggle with these problems is that they're glad to have choice recognized. And actually, it can be incredibly empowering to finally, you know, have someone acknowledge that there is choice, even if it's limited or constrained. And I certainly don't think I've had much pushback from clinicians or psychiatrists who I've spoken to on the whole. I have had a lot of pushback from philosophers. To be honest, I think part of the reason has to do Many, you know, many philosophers who think about these things and think about them in relation to mental disorder don't have clinical experience or don't spend a lot of time with a, a diverse population of patients. It may be that um, most of their experience uh, with people with mental disorder comes from family or friends or people mm-hmm. who are quite intimate. And sort of, again, as we noted earlier, that's a place where... Um, excusing someone from responsibility can be most productive to a personal relationship. So there's maybe the reason why that's where I've got the most pushback. Here's another explanation, which isn't the personal thing about having, you know, most of their experience of people with mental disorder coming from friends or family. It's that the philosophers, maybe the people who don't believe me, that it's possible to have a forward-looking notion of responsibility is divorced from blame. Okay. And if you don't buy that, right, and they may not buy that for philosophical reasons, right. they may not buy that because their own theory of responsibility is very tied to blame, right? right. Um, if you don't buy that, then you're going to be very loath yeah. to attribute responsibility because of the way you think it just immediately leads to the idea that people deserve blame. So maybe um, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. And I, and I definitely think that a part of it is, um, now again, I'm using a very broad this thing, but Western is a really broad term, but there is a type of thinking that I've seen, which is like, it has difficulty negotiating contradictions. So when I came to the US, it was really surprising to see that people were talking about evolution versus religion. Whereas in India, you know, scientists will send like rovers to Mars and they will have religious ceremonies before that. That was never, that was never a contradictory thing. So I think sometimes people kind of struggle with the idea of contradictions or like you can have responsibility without blame and it it can be a forward-looking concept and these two things seem to be in conflict but they are not if you understand that nature of things is rather fluid and dynamic um yeah absolutely so um that underlying kind of thing we're thinking is something i've had to deal with like it's either a or b right it has to be very it's very black and white so i guess i think of a lot of the work i've done is trying to kind of explore right right and find the middle ground and i think that you know much western thinking particularly particularly in the u.s potentially is quite black and white so it's one or the other yeah um and, and it's so unhelpful. I mean, actually, we find that right now, I feel, in some of the popular discourse around drugs. So they're really, you know, there's a kind of a group of people who really think drugs are just bad. I mean, they're typically people who are advocates for the brain disease model. They really see them as having like terrible power to addict and to destroy our lives. And then in response to that, there are people who, you know, really are emphasizing all and only benefits of drugs, the goodness of drugs, right? The greatness of drugs. Um, And of course, the truth is in between, right? 
drugs have tremendous benefits and tremendous risks and costs mm -hmm. and any individual or society needs to be thinking about how to manage both how to get the most out of them while protecting against the costs right yeah. and you know so in some sense that nuance um it's essential and it's so missing from public discourse. And I think it's also in some sense what the responsibility with that blame model is trying to do, but it's equally sort of unfamiliar and a bit of an anathema. I mean, either people are responsible and blameworthy or they're not, right? There's not this kind of middle ground. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me and having me. And um, I really value these kinds of conversations. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.